Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the seventh class of our wise restraint structured study, uh, seven, uh, seventh of 14 classes that lead into our wise restraint moment-by-moment Dhamma practice retreat. Um, and I'll be sending an email out on that to those that have registered. Actually, I'll send two emails, one to those that are registered and another to, to just everyone on the list um, that has links to the book. Uh, the retreat book we'll be using. This sutta, the Jiramananda Sutta, Ten Understandings, um, is again, I don't think I've ever said this, this is one of the most important suttas that the Buddha ever taught. Uh, and I say that just about every one. And they're all important. This one, um, to me, it stands out in its um, brilliant and comprehensive presentation of why we're practicing and what we're exa- exactly what we're practicing for and what, we're, what, we're, what we will develop through the Dhamma. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying in Savati, in Jita's Grove, Anathapandika's monastery. Venerable Jira Mananda was sick and distressed. Ananda went to the Buddha and asked if he would visit Jira Mananda out of sympathy for him. The Buddha said, Ananda, if you would go to Jira Mananda and tell him of the ten understandings, it is possible that upon hearing your words, his distress will be relieved. And then he said, these are the ten understandings you should teach Jiramananda. One, the understanding of impermanence. Everything is based on that understanding, isn't it? That everything changes. And since everything changes, nothing can be personal, so why personalize it? The Buddha continues by saying, this Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, knows the five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. All are impermanent, and this is called understanding impermanent. So understanding the personal experience of suffering as... Can somebody get me a paper towel, please? I'm at it. You've got to remember the fiction. He's got it. If I was just sitting alone, I'd use my arm, but I can't do that here. Uh-huh. Thank you. There's two... Yeah, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> All right. So, form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths is the Buddha's description of the personal ongoing experience of suffering, again, rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. So, it is by self identifying with this form and the physical forms of the world, the perceptions that come out of this form, remember, this thinking is rooted in ignorance the mental fabrications that are formed out of those perceptions, and again, the ongoing thinking that continues to be rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, unless something is introduced into our lives, each and one of our lives, to (laughs) interrupt that thinking. And so the Buddha immediately tells Ananda to tell Jiramananda to remind him of his understanding of impermanence, that by taking things personal, we are... We are solidifying impermanence and ignorance in our lives. 
by understanding this, that this is, all of this is impersonal, especially what's I can especially, especially only what is occurring to this, because this is what, this is the being that we are as individuals living. And I, that's probably really confusing. But what I'm saying is that when we completely remove self-identification with form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrication, and ongoing thinking, we are no longer attached to the world. We are sovereign. We are rooted in our own well-concentrated, well-informed minds. And at that point, we are simply a reference point to what's occurring. We are an ongoing reference point to the impermanence of the world. And as such, every moment of our lives becomes meaningful. Why? Because we're there for it. Why do, why do human beings grasp after these so-called peak experiences? In fact, I went through a time in my life where some of the more famous uh, so-called self-help teachers were, were teaching just that. And it was really, they were teaching manifestation of a fabricated view of self as the goal for human life. And it was um, a somewhat reasonable goal until you understand all the eye-making that was involved in it. Let me continue. Two, the understanding of not-self, meaning the understanding of self-identification with form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and that kind of thinking. This Dharma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, does not self-identify with what is seen, or what is heard, or what is smelled, or what is touched, or what is tasted, or what is thought, which is everything in the world, by the way. They have developed restraint at the sixth sense base. This is called understanding not-self. That Number two is the whole point of this study. We understand or we develop restraint at the sixth sense base, at the point of contact where this self, me, John Haspel, is coming in contact with the world. How do I do it? Through my five physical senses and the sixth sense, the thinking that, that, in, that is informed by and animates what comes through those senses. So if that last aspect, that sixth factor of the sixth sense base is perceiving things out of ignorance, incorrectly, a fabricated view, then what is that mind going to produce? Chaos, out of misunderstanding. And for no other reason. It's not because that mind is bad or being punished for for past indiscretions or is somehow not a qualified human being. You know, we we all decide that we're not through self-loathing. We're not good enough for this present moment. But when we understand that all we are and all we ever can be Remember the Datu Vibhanga Sutta? We started this with it. All that we can ever be is a six-property person informed by these six-sense base. And when we understand that again, we are a reference point to what's occurring. Rather than grasping out of, grasping into this moment for me. Where is the me in it? Where can I establish me? And we understand that we can never establish me. But what happens when we stop trying to establish me in every thought, word, and idea that occurs? Laura, <laughs> what happens when we when we stop establishing me and every thought, word, and idea that occurs? It's a tough question. Well, we we develop a calm, still mind and heightened concentration, and no ig- <laughs> ignorance fades away. Yeah. Becca, will you get the gold stars out of the <laughs> Number three, thank you, Laura. The understanding of unattractiveness. This Dharma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, knows the entire body, their entire body surrounded by skin and filled with decay and unclean things. I got that. 
They know there is this body of hair except me. Nails, teeth, skin, muscle, man, not much. Tendons, bone, marrow, organs, feces, urine, phlegm, sweat, tears. Understanding thus, they are always mindful of the unattractiveness of the body. This is understanding unattractiveness. Again, one of the most important things the Buddha ever taught, and probably the only teacher that ever taught it. I've never come across any teacher, Buddhist or otherwise, that ever taught this. And I should say, in a direct, meaningful way. They, they, well, they, St. Augustine was, was famous. Ah, here we go, yes. Thank you, Ram. St. Augustine is who Ram said. So the, the Buddha is teaching us to, to, to stop being so enamored with this thing that we are most enamored with. And Why? He taught us why, just a paragraph before. Because it's impermanent. And because it is prone to all these horrible things. But not so that we should be depressed about being stuck in this body, just so we understand it. And we can stop trying to play, put it out there as the, as the most grandest example of creation, because it's not. Depending on who you're talking to, there's got to be different applications of what is the grandest thing in the universe. But the time that I always thought that it was me was the time I got into the most trouble and I didn't understand anything. When I realized that I'm just a reference point to what's occurring, then everything in my life seems to make sense and I don't need it to be any different than it is. Including this body that at this point in my life has fallen apart rather rapidly. But the cow's not going to get me today. It's interesting to, to see it because most of the time people will, will take this idea of the un, unattractiveness as, as something ugly. Yeah. Which is not what he's saying. He's Thank saying, you, Ram. Do not be attracted to this. Yeah, and get, get over your attractiveness to it mm -hmm. because there's nothing to be attracted to. No, I mean, no matter who you are, you know, you could be recognized as the, the world's greatest model. Or you're that still, your body still, has to be attractive in order for you to be at peace and calm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that you have to be a certain something. When the Buddha is teaching all of us, no matter what you think of yourself, you're this. You're full of this stuff. And it's important to just remind ourselves. We don't drag it around with us. You know, it's not on our thoughts every day, every moment of every day. But we recognize this and we integrate it as part of our Dharma practice. Yeah, this is this body. And it is just like this. And I can't make of it to be anything other than what it is. But what it is, is the vehicle for a human life. And if I could just step into the vehicle, then I'm living a life. Then I'm the reference point for this life. And if I don't, I'm not. I'm living that fabricated view that I've created about myself, influenced by the world, you know, beginning with our parents, etc., and our, what, what our experience is. But when that mind is rooted in ignorance and starts fabricating a self, basically at birth, and never stops until death, what has happened? That human being has lived their whole, whole life, as we were all doing at one point, in a fabrication. A misunderstanding of what this moment means. And the Buddha figured out a way. I mean, that was what bothered him, basically. He didn't understand it at first. But when he finally understood his problem was humanity's problem was simply not being able to practice wise restraint in this moment. And this is Dhamma practice. Understanding the unattractive. It doesn't, it doesn't define me as unattractive, does it? Because the Buddha... Can, can I ask a question, John? Yes, please. Um, so does this mean that any attempt to look good 
is futile. Uh, so I understand, first of all, yes. all but we don't sort of, um, uh, you know, you look appropriate to whatever setting you're in, mm-hmm. right? So if you go to a wedding, you're not going to show up in, you know, um, flip-flops and, and, and sort of, um, yeah, um, uh, shorts. But is there... Is is it just yeah immediately futile even to say hey I want to wear certain types of clothes because they make me feel good or because I think yeah I, I don't know they make me feel good or, or they or they make me um, well, uh, yeah I, I, I don't know I, I guess was there the more I expand it? it the more the more the more futile it becomes right if yeah. I was to say oh, it makes me look attractive to other people then that that is already becoming. Um, that's already sort of, um, uh, you know, the self characteristic. But is is it is it futile from the beginning? Is it just? Yeah, let me let me ask you this: way. It, it's um, it's more futile for me to do it than for you to do it. <laughs> it's it's futile as part of this. I have to go out into the world and be a certain way and look a certain way in my mind. And when I do that, I'm stuck, aren't I? And, I, and I'll never be happy with that. And, and I've never been. But if I'm going to a wedding, <coughs> right action, and I would say refined mindfulness, tells me not to wear a flip-flop and, flip-flops and tank top. And it's not because of eye-making. It's, it, it's really out of respect for the community that I'm joining. So there's no eye-making in that. And again, it has to. It also goes back to right intention. In this moment, what is my intention for doing this? And so, my intention this morning to wear this wonderful shirt wasn't for eye making. It was because I wanted to honor my friend. But if if my friend was fond of tank tops, I wouldn't be wearing this today because it wouldn't be appropriate. Do you understand? So I'm not trying to be the best dressed. Meditation teacher I in the do. world. I mean, that's just natural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's beyond the skew. It flows from but, my but I mean, understanding I mean, of fashion. In the natural world, you know, you have sort of peacocks that show their feathers and stuff yeah. like this, right? So, yeah. so, so you know, um, um, obviously I'm a, a few years younger than you, but is is it is it um, is it okay to say, okay, I want to look, I want to wear nice clothes because... It, it might, you never know, help help to, I, I don't know, match with someone or something like that. Or, or again, is that is that already projecting too much of, of the self on on the? Um, yeah, on, I just woo my partner with with my with my wisdom and knowledge of the Dharma instead. You, you, have to, you have to ask yourself. I've been trying to get away with that for sixty six years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, the, the 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 Dharma doesn't. Um, deny us our own humanity, and so again, of course, if I'm if I'm going to um, if I'm going on a date, I'm going to wear decent clothes, and I probably wouldn't even use this shirt. I have a better Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> no, I mean honestly, it, again, it, it's out of it's just out of I don't know why that word keeps coming up in my mind. It's just really out of respect for me and the other person in the situation. So of course, if I'm meeting someone for the purposes of possibly developing a relationship. I do want to look my best, but it's not the in, again the intention. Am I? Do I want it's to look, look my best so so that so and so doesn't reject me because I can't take rejection, or is it or is it really just appropriate for the occasion to put on nice clothes when I'm meeting someone or teaching a dharma class or going to work or anything else? I mean, really, it so 
a, the, the same activity, the results of the activity depends on what you're holding in mind. And if what you're holding in mind is further eye-making, you're likely going to get yourself in trouble. And you might even say some silly things on the date that aren't exactly true because you're so caught up in your own... Really, I mean, we, 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 I might have done that once in my life. Because we're so caught up in this identity, you know, and it's so it's become paramount now that this one single person across from me it loves me that I've lost my mind over it rather than just enjoying a pleasant evening with someone. And I wish I had learned that when I was 16, but yeah, I didn't. Only with refined mindfulness. Pardon me? Only with refined mindfulness. You know yeah, difference. it's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without mm-hmm. it, you'll think you're doing it for the right intentions, but yeah. is, are you attached to it or is it appropriate? If yeah. it's appropriate, then we're feathers. If it's because you're trying to impress just for the sake of impressing, then you're probably not even aware of it. Right? Yeah, you, you, likely you wouldn't be. You would be. You would. I mean, I didn't. I never knew I was eye-making when I was eye-making. I felt the pain of it, and we all have. In fact, you could say the Dhamma is just for that, what Dave was talking about. So I recognize my eye-making in ordinary situations, but I'm still living those ordinary situations, aren't I? I'm still going to work. I still might be going on dates. I don't go on a lot of dates. You know, I, I tried that, uh, that, that BuddhaDate.com, and it didn't work for me. Somewhere. <laughs> um, look, look at how but, the Buddha tried to resolve that issue, you know, by having uh, everybody wear wear their robes. Yeah. And even that, all you know, sooner or later required sixteen rules just for the robes. Yeah, just to, for people to keep <laughs> their robes on. The eye making still continues. Yeah. And again, so um, and again, even when that started occurring in the original sangha, the Buddha didn't just say, "Oh, the hell with it. The dom is too much trouble." He just he set rules up. For doing just what you're describing, so that we can we can live within a community framed by the Dhamma moment by moment, still living in ordinary life, and not engaging in eye making, or at least having that community like we have a well informed, well focused sangha, so that when we're engaged in eye making, it will become much more obvious, and so we'll stop it. But it's such an important question, and again, you're. The question leads to what this sutta, this structure study is about. It is wise restraint in this moment that I can, I can understand <laughs> wise restraint as I'm getting dressed and wise restraint as I'm presenting myself. It's just me. It's just me in these nice clothes and let's have a nice evening. Rather than, again, the desperation of I need something out of you this evening and look at all that I did for you, which leads to all kinds of nastiness, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So it's, and, and again, we're not just talking about romantic uh, interactions. Again, it could be at work. It could be going to a, a football game or as you might call it, the American... What do you call hand-tossed American football? <laughs> what do we call what? Well, American football. You had a name for it once. When I No, we, we call it American football. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's the only football there is. Bye! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Number four. <laughs> the Buddha's words. I love it. The only real football is American football. <laughs> Number four. I, I, John, you should put me on mute now, John. <laughs> <laughs> Number four. All right, let's get see. This is serious stuff here. 
Yeah, I didn't really. We, what we're really do, dealing with in the Dhamma is the absurdity of eye making, and it really is good to laugh. Yeah. I would say at least five or six times every class. <laughs> Number four, the understanding of drawbacks. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, notice how often the Buddha places importance on that, reflects on the drawbacks of the body. They understand the various parts of pains of the body, such as disease of the senses. Disease of the organs, disease of the mind, disease of the body, dis-ease from changing weather, which is really a reference to all external events, worldly events. This is understanding drawbacks. So again, the Buddha is not teaching that we get to some point where we can escape our humanity. But most of, most all of modern so-called spiritual practices are geared towards that, escaping this thing because it's so awful finding a better repository for myself. Where the Buddha says, we can't escape it, but we can understand it. And it's not a deep and profound understanding. It's an understanding based on my experience. And if I would just quiet my mind enough to have an experience of my life, then I can understand it. And it's, we don't have to go any further than that. There's not a lot of analysis and understanding what it means to be a human being or the pains of having a human life. And when we can accept it as this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, and simply as a consequence of having a human life, then we can make the, uh, the cost-benefit analysis. Is, is it worth it? And I would say it is. And that's the point of what the Buddha is teaching us, to recognize that lousy little stinky 1% is just that. And if we can understand the 1% that is so distracted, we get to be present for the 99% that most of us, including us Dhamma practitioners, would otherwise miss. It's a pretty good deal. Number five, the understanding of abandoning. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, abandons all thoughts of sensuality, all thoughts of ill will, all all thoughts of harmfulness, all unskillful mental qualities. This is understanding abandoning, meaning we know what we're to let go of, to to recognize and directly abandon it. The understanding of dispassion. This Dharma practitioner, well established, well, well secluded while establishing jhana, understands this is peace. This is the exquisite stilling of fabrications. This is the relinquishment of all clinging. This is the cessation of clinging This is the full development of dispassion. This is complete unbinding. This is understanding dispassion. Does anyone think they can't get there through the Dhamma? Honestly, do you think you can't get there? You realize now you have the path and the practice in order to get to that point. We can abandon those things that we must abandon. Thoughts of sensuality, thoughts of ill will, all thoughts of harmfulness and all unskillful mental qualities. And we do that through dispassion, through being, at first establishing our seclusion on our, on our cushion and then being present moment by moment with wise restraint when it arises, when that 99% arises to be present for that as well and recognize this is peace. This is the great stoic. This is unbinding. And it's not happening out there, is it? It's happening within us in a mind united in its body. And at that point, we own that peace. We own that stillness. It's ours. And worldly conditions can never, ever take it away. In fact, worldly conditions never, ever did take it away. We did it to ourselves. 
Because of that, we can resolve that issue within ourselves through developing these simple and direct understandings. Seven, the understanding of cessation, this Dharma practitioner. So again, we can understand what the process. In fact, we have to understand the process. This Dharma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, understands this is peace, this is the exquisite stilling of fabrications, this is the relinquishment of clinging. This is the cessation of craving, this is the full development of this passion, this is complete unbinding. Number eight, the understanding of distaste for every world. What is the Buddha saying? Because he's teaching us there's only this world. But again, we have to understand this within the context of the Dhamma and some other sutras where the Buddha says, don't go into any speculative magical realms. Don't try to establish yourself in any non-physical realm. But it was common during the Buddha's time, and so the Buddha's referencing here. He's saying, even in this world or any other world that your imagination might try to establish yourself, stop it. Understand and develop a distaste for all of that type of practice. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, refrains from all worldly entanglements. What might that be? Well, a modern Buddhist practice of that, that directly encourages that, is called engaged Buddhism. It's taking up a cause and making that cause the substitute for doing just what the Buddha is doing. And so once you develop the Dharma, you may still take up a cause, but you'll do it with calmness, grace, and peace, and you'll do it without bringing any more discord into the world because you'll understand it. But primarily, you'll be able to sit in peacefulness, calm with a still mind, no matter what's occurring in the world. And most of the time, you'll realize that there's nothing you can do about it. And there's great peace in that understanding as well. Because as the Buddha teaches us, dukkha occurs. And as you start understanding that, we can really pick our battles with great wisdom and understand that in many cases, if we could possibly stop people from creating suffering in their own lives, it would be the most hurtful thing we can do. Why? Because they wouldn't learn anything from it. Again, the most important thing to do is to understand Four Noble Truths. There is dukkha, there is stress and suffering. There is a cause, the cessation of it is possible, and there's a path leading to that cessation. So we're not denying anything in our existence, but we're simply understanding what it is and put all of it in, in the proper perspective rooted in wise restraint. This is me, this is mine. This is not me, this is, <laughs> this is me. This is not me, this is not mine. Nine, the understanding of the undesirability of all fabrications. What's the Buddha talking about? Where the hell are these fabrications? And how are they undesirable? Well, they're, obviously they're in my mind. And they're things that I maintain from one moment to another moment to continue to ignore my own ignorance. They're my fabrications. They're what I do or use to establish myself in the world. And how do I recognize them? Through jhana practice and the framework of the Eightfold Path. How do I notice them? Through being mindful of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Because your fabrications will always come out in the things you're saying to others, and more importantly, the things or the story you've got going with yourself. And your, your speech will always lead to your actions and will also inform, to a great extent, your livelihood. And that does not mean 
that does not mean you shouldn't work for a gun manufacturer unless you have unless you have a, a, a real well-informed decision to not do that. The reason why I'm saying that is that your job isn't a bad job save for what you make out of it. And now what, why am I saying that? And, and there's a huge debate. Maybe I shouldn't have touched on this. But the point I'm making is that there's some areas of the world where people must have guns to survive. And so to just make a blanket statement there should never be any guns is a foolish thing to say. But to be involved in that in that sale, you might want to be a little bit more circumspect than some other people might be. And in that way, you would be bringing some refined mindfulness to an industry that right now doesn't have a lot of it. And that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? I mean, there's people who would argue that point. But the point I'm making that even an industry like that can use a bit of refined mindfulness, couldn't it? And we're able to do it. Again, so uh, uh, using something that is getting people very excited today, and rightly so, I would, well, not rightly so, but I can understand it. But even this we can understand, and if we can understand that, then we can realize that taking up a cause against anything is only 1% effective, 99 in 1. And we should be very cautious about that, about the positions we're taking. And and it doesn't mean that if we don't take a hardened position against something that we're for it, it simply means we understand the nature of suffering and its manifest manifestation in the world. And the world would be a much better place if we all understood suffering. Because then we could stop trying to legislate it and simply live in peace. Because a wise Dharma practitioner would never struck an, strike another person and certainly would never start another war. Number nine, the understanding of the undesirability... I'm not reading these twice, but it's important. The understanding of the undesirability of all fabrications. This Dharma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, is horrified, humbled, and repulsed with fabrications. This is understanding fabrications. Excuse me. So... I don't know about you, and I hope none of you had experienced this, but I know when I look back on the, some of the things that I did, and I never ever tried to hurt somebody intentionally, but I was horrified at, at a lot of my behavior, and I still am. And it was behavior that was in, unintentionally hurtful to the people that I loved the most, and then some people I just didn't know. But, but that was also the beginning of my understanding. I know you've heard me talk about this often, that when I finally started realizing that, and this was, this started when, we're, when I was very, very young. Um, and it was the first time that I acted out in anger against my parents. And I hurt them, but I didn't understand it. But I, but I knew that I did it. And that started shaping and conditioning my, my behavior up until I understand, understood what I was doing. Because what it did was I... I realized that I had inadvertently hit, hurt someone that I loved, my parents, which felt to me like I was out of control. I didn't understand how and why I did it. I mean, I understood my frustration, but I didn't know that I, I knew that I could never stop that. And so I, was a, I, I began to develop fear of my own behavior, fear of myself, self-loathing. And even though I was afraid of it now, it still came up over and over again. And we all did. We all... I, the only people I know that in this room, I know that Jen never had an argument with her mother, ever, ever, ever. But. 
hairbrushes flying. That's what I remember. Hairbrushes flying around the bathroom. Wait, 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 wait. What did you say, Jen? Hairbrushes flying around the bathroom. Yes, and that was not you. That was not what you are. I don't remember that. Yeah, I do. I remember, yeah. And so... And again, it's so good that we laugh at these things, but this is just ordinary human behavior, but it starts conditioning our mind, our minds in a very pernicious and hurtful way. And we are able to discover that, and maybe it only happened to me and Jen, but I suspect it happened to all of you. And because we have a way of understanding it, rather than, and I'm not putting down therapists, rather than spending 50 years on a couch, and again, I'm not putting it down, that, that's very helpful in, at times. We can get to it rather immediately and recognize this is not me, this is not mine. This is not what I am. But when we recognize it, it's okay to be horrified and humbled by that. Because that's the point. But we don't beat ourselves up over it, do we? We simply recognize that that was what I was at one point in my life. And in this moment, I'm doing everything I can so that I never act that way again. Why? Because it's so hurtful to me first and then to other people. And that's a good ex- example of how it's so hurtful to me. Because it hurts my mind. And because I did it out of a fabrication, because I did it out of my authority, it couldn't help but further condition my mind. Again, I did it myself. I'm responsible for that. And you could even say, well, well how is a five-year-old responsible? Well, you, little Johnny wasn't really responsible, but at some point, maybe when I'm 21 or 26 or 66, it's time for me to take responsibility for my, for my own behavior and what I'm carrying around with me. And in that way, I can heal that broken self and live the rest of my life as a reference point to what is, was it, what is occurring. And then the tenth one, the tenth understanding. The understanding of mindfulness of in and out breathing. An understanding of jhana meditation. That's a little bit more than just doing it, isn't it? It's understanding it. Having a direct experiential understanding of jhana meditation, which means this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. In this moment, when I find that I'm caught up in a thought or a feeling, remember the four foundations of mindfulness? I recognize that I'm doing that, and I take a breath. And my mind is back in my body. In that moment, I am living my life as a reference point to what's occurring. And in that moment... Even if at first it just happens to be on my cushion, that is the most meaningful moment I've ever had. Why? Because I've had it. And I'm here to recognize it. And in that moment, I can understand what's occurring. And on my cushion, in the next breath, I might be caught up in a feeling or a thought again. What I do, I unite my mind and my body through my breath. And every time I do that, I'm interrupting the process rooted in the permanence of ongoing eye-making. The, mis- the, un- the understanding of mindfulness of in and out breathing. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded, sits comfortably, legs folded or in a chair, their body erect, setting mindfulness to the fore, and remaining mindful of the breath. I'm sorry, remaining mindful of the breath in the body, they breathe in. Again, this is this is understanding mindfulness of in and out breathing. This is the Buddha teaching us how to understand it. Remaining mindful of the breath in the body, they breathe in. Remaining mindful of the breath in the body, they breathe out. And then the Buddha says, while breathing with long breaths, they know they are breathing with long breaths. 
We just know. We don't manipulate our breath to a longer breath or a shorter breath. That is a complete misunderstanding of the of the forefront of the Satipatthana Sutta and the Anapanasati Sutta, which people take as instructions to do this. Where again, if you just read the Sutta, the Buddha never teaches to do that. These are his words. When breathing with long breaths, they know they're breathing with long breaths. It's an ordinary long breath. While breathing with short breaths, they know they are breathing with short breaths. This Dhamma practitioner trains himself. I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to the body. Again, sensitive to the body. It just means that I know I have a body. I've now united my mind in the body. And I'm using my breath to do it. I'm sensitive to this body. Recognize it. While breathing in, bodily fabrications will calm. We're not breathing in too calm bodily fabrications as a consequence of doing jhana meditation as thought. Bodily fabrications calm. And it happens every time. And it works every time. While breathing out, bodily fabrications calm. This Dhamma practitioner trains himself to breathe in and breathe out sensitive to joy. Not chasing after joy, but being present for it when it arises. Sensitive to pleasure and sensitive to all mental processes. Sensitive to all mental processes. Most of my life I rejected most of the thoughts that I were having, which were thoughts related to my attachments to the world. I don't want this, I don't want that, I don't want that person in my life. But now, when I breathe in, I've trained myself to be sensitive to these mental processes. And so when I find my mind going, "Ah, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. And in that way, I'm maintaining refined mindfulness and allowing myself or giving myself the opportunity to live this moment. Through what? Through what, Becky? John meditation. And? Refined mindfulness. And? I'm going to try to get three out of it. It's a tough one. Wise restraint. Oh, cool. Wise restraint. That's a little bit more vague. And it's just that way. And so, you know, not to be too cute, and I know I am, but this is Dhamma practice. And it's just this simple and it's just this damn hard. It's in this moment. Why is restraint in this moment? How do we do it? Jhana meditation and integrating the entire Eightfold Path into this moment. The Buddha continues, This Dhamma practitioner trains himself to breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to the calming of all mental processes. This Dhamma practitioner trains himself to breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to thoughts arising and passing away. This Dhamma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to satisfying the mind. There's nothing I need, nothing I want. Finally, my mind is satisfied in this moment. And in the next moment, something might grab my attention and I decide I must have that. But now, I can just take a breath and realize I don't have to have it. And to answer Tom's questions, I may decide, well, I'm going to go get it anyway. And I do. And in that moment, I've ended the eye-making that would have otherwise stressed out that moment. And I can just go about doing things and living my life. This Dharma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to releasing the mind. Sensitive to releasing the mind. Letting go. Letting go of this mind. What does it mean? I haven't lost control. Remember, I am well-concentrated as I'm releasing my mind. 
it notice the different slight different words and uses of verbiage. The Buddha's not saying abandon the mind, as he said to abandon things that are vexing to the mind. Just release the mind. The mind is still there. It's well concentrated. It's now released from fabrications. The Buddha continues, breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to impermanence. Breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to dispassion. Breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to cessation. We've got to be present for it. We've got to recognize that, yes, cessation has taken place. Breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to relinquishment. We'll know when we let go of it. It's a direct experience, a direct conscious experience of letting go. Of what? Of letting go what is disturbing in this moment. This is called mindfulness of in and out breathing. So there's no misunderstanding of what we're doing now. The Buddha continues, Ananda, go to, to the ill Jiramananda and tell him of these ten understandings. If Jiramananda develops these understandings, his disease may be relieved. Maybe. Again, the Buddha's not a savior. He doesn't see his Dhamma as salvific. So he's not promising Ananda that you can go be a savior. But he's saying it's worth a shot. Ananda, having learned these ten understandings from the Buddha, went to Jiramananda. Jiramananda, hearing Ananda, was relieved. His disease abandoned. So what happened in that few moments that, that's the end of the sutta, what happened in the few moments that Ananda told Jiramananda this? Jiramananda was able to apply it directly to his Dhamma practice that he had been doing up until then. Remember, he's been integrating the Dhamma and in this moment, he was disturbed. And he discussed that with Ananda. And Ananda went to his teacher, said, what's going on? And the Buddha, understanding Jirmananda, and of course the Dhamma, said, go tell him these things and see if it helps. The Buddha had a pretty good idea that it was going to help because he understood him. And he did, and it did. So what's the point of that? He was just sharing the Dhamma. There was nothing magical in those words 2,600 years ago to Jirmananda, and there's nothing magical about them today, save that that's Dhamma practice. It's wise restraint, developing these ten understandings. That's today's talk. Um, let's go around the room. And Brian was first. Brian, how are you? I'm well, John. I think I'm going to take noble silence today. Thank you. I'm glad you're well, and I'm glad you joined us. Kevin, how are you? Hi, John. Um, thank you. This is really an important sutta. It's really like a, a huge roadmap, again, through the Dhamma. Um, I really, in that number nine, with um, being horrified and humbled by fabrications, I take that to mean, and I hope this is correct, I take it to mean when we are meditating, um, you know, we, we take breaths and we're mindful and we're focused and we're centered, we're, you know, we're trying to release our mind and then a fabrication comes up and then we go off, you know, and many members have talked about this, many Sangha members, and we go off on a big tangent. And then after a while, it's like, Oh my gosh, where am I? And I have to take a breath and come back. And I think in that, in that moment, we are horrified. Yes. We are humble to yes. say this mind is out of control, you know? So it's a great reminder and a great reminder that, it's the way it is for the Buddha and for everyone. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for that, Kevin. I didn't put it in that context, and that really is the, the most important context, isn't it? It's on our cushion. When we find ourselves distracted and caught up in our thoughts, we should be horrified without eye-making, without beating ourselves up, because it's a good word to apply to it. 
Most people will be horrified and then beat themselves up for it, but we don't. We just this it isn't it's an awful place to recognize that you've been in a fabrication, in a walking dream of our own lives. And I would be very angry about all of that, except there's no one to blame but myself. And what I recognize is how fortunate I was to recognize it and just put it behind me and have the opportunity to live this moment. And again, if this moment is the last moment of my life, well, I had it, you know? And I and that is more than, again, it's not in comparison or that I'm better, but that's more than most people <clears throat> can live. I remember when my dad was coming to the end. I was, And he was, he was probably too far, not that he was, uh, he didn't have dementia of any kind, but he, was, he just got slower. And I was, I wasn't trying to force him to do it, but I was so trying to just get him to be in a moment uh, just before he died. And I don't think he ever did it. And it wasn't a struggle, but it was almost like a game we kept trying to play. And he would say, yeah, I'm there. Yeah, I'm there. And I said, what are you thinking about? He would say, well, I'm thinking about, I was thinking about my brother Johnny. I said, no, you're not there yet, Dad. Because, and and I mean, it was kind of a fun game. But it it was also uh, poignantly sad I wish I had I I could have done that for him, but I also understand that that this man lived a remarkable life and he did almost everything he ever wanted. Meaning, I don't want to give you the whole history, but but he did do that, and he ended up um, going from nothing, building a family and a business, and raising six kids, which is remarkable. For any uh, again, I won't tell his whole story, but where he came from. It almost shouldn't have happened. So he didn't have to, all of that, he didn't have to awaken. It wasn't up to me to decide that something was wrong with dad because he didn't awaken. He lived his life the way he wanted to. And I'm living my life the way that I want to. So I consider myself so fortunate to have found the Dhamma and develop it. But I don't think that he is unfortunate or anybody else's because they haven't. It's just what occurred. Because for me to think that way, it would mean to, to be falling into salvation, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. That gee, I could have saved my, mm-hmm. I could have saved my dad if he just had listened to me. I mentioned Uncle George before. Eh, I don't want that. that probably, I don't want to talk about that in public. If anybody wants to hear the story, I'll tell you one on one, but not on something I'm taping. Got to put out there. So, um, yeah, thank you, Kevin. So John, oh, I, I, yeah. I thought if I apologize, I won't be able to hear everybody else's comments. But thank you for the teaching. I'm glad you joined us. See you soon, my friend. See you. Hello, Tom. Hi, John. Um, yeah, really, really enjoyed this this sutta. Um, as always, but perhaps especially, you know, this this is one of those suttas that, that is always relevant, yeah. uh, entirely practical. And if you just do the instructions, it, it really does work. Um, and so that's what's so self-encouraging about the entire process. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is one of those suitors that leaves me feeling quite inspired because I'm it's just like what you said. I um, still feel so fortunate to to have discovered these teachings yeah. um, and and to now have the opportunity for however many more moments of my life are left to to uh, to apply them. Um, so. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for pointing out that the importance of of the self encouragement that develops from recognizing that this is working. It's so important, and that's why I emphasize it often. And so does the Buddha. So do our other teachers. Hello, Matteo. 
Hello, everybody. Um, so, uh, if I understood well the sutra partially, so to coming back what Tom pointed out as his question about beautification of the body, to make it simple, and uh, also like when we talk about the the jobs, no, that somebody shouldn't like be judgmentalist, as we say, like somebody like produce weapons, like that. So my understanding is like, so we should uh, we should use the same uh, strategy or technique that using meditation also to to see the world around us. You know, the coming and the raising and coming of the thought and feeling. We just pass away. We notice. We come back to meditate. So it's something similar. Also in our uh, uh, real life or the perception of the life. Yes. To make it. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Matt. Please keep going. Just to say, like, a, a, to make it simple, the, the things. So it's basically what we do in meditation, we should do the, the rest of the day. Yes, yes. The, so, we, again, we talk about this often. The seclusion we establish in jhana mm-hmm. meditation is the same seclusion we take off our cushion and bring with us to the world. So we are well secluded out in the world. We're disentangled from the world. And the world continues. And so now we understand the impermanence of all things. We don't have to change anything out there. We learn the difference between approval and acceptance. But again, it doesn't mean that um, it, it, if we see someone in need of a meal, we don't say, oh, oh that's, that's just dukkha. We're more likely to give them a sandwich than we might have otherwise been. So we don't lose that. But I, I also don't go home thinking about what a wonderful person is because I gave somebody five bucks. You know, it, 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 it's just all in perspective. And it allows me to be at peace with myself. It has nothing to do with anything else in the world or even you. Do you understand what I'm saying, Matteo? So, yeah, yeah, but uh, my point is like, is another, maybe if I make like some extreme example. I think I read somewhere, I can remember, it was an American philosopher. So if you, have a, if you have a snake and a mouse, who are we going to save? Because, you know, the snake needs mice to, to feed himself, to be alive, but then we are killing the mice. And then, so what we are doing, so we are, I think uh, there is some example, not, not even so extreme, like in our life, that sometimes you have to, you have to make a choice. My, my, my question or my, my concern is like, we do have to make a choice or we just leave it as it is? Um, I, the, I, the, the hypothetical is, is a little hard for me to, to uh, address. Another uh, the reason why is that I don't have anything to do with snakes or mice. They, they live in the world and sometimes snakes get the mice and sometimes he doesn't. Um, but it's not for me to, there's nothing, there's nothing for me to even interrupt or think that I should. The snake is supposed to get the mouse. As, I mean, as far as I know, there's nothing, I would be interrupting, um, I would be interrupting natural processes if I took the mouse away from the snake. How do I know that the snake? I mean, I, again, we, you get into all kinds of speculation. Yeah. So, it, it the, so the so the so the basis is not, um, and and so that 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 translates into the world too. Um, if I know someone is going to kill another person, I would I would address that in the proper way, simply because it it's not wrong to me. You know, you know, I live in a world that has systems to deal with these things. It's not up to me to, to build the system. But so I know you're going to go kill your neighbor. I'm likely going to call the police and say, Mateo's going to kill his neighbor. 
You understand it? So it's directly applicable to the world I'm living in. But I'm not doing it I mean, as a savior. I'm just doing it as a, as a practicality. I don't like so much my neighbor, but to be sure, I, I don't do that. <laughs> well, you better not because I'm going to get the... What's in, wait, what town are you living in? Just in case. I, so do you understand? We don't, we don't lose our minds. In fact, we regain our minds. But we, we're always present in a practical way. That's why I talked about the, the, the philosopher's story as irrelevant to our conversation. I understand it. But again, what occurs in nature is what occurs in nature. Um, I protect my dog because I don't want him sorry to... If I t- Go ahead. Uh, sorry if I, po- I mean, I completely agree with you. My point is exactly that. I think my example about the snake and the mouse is like, when we have to make a decision who we're going to save is because somebody like forced the nature. No, if, for example, if I have a, a, as, as a pet, a snake at home, you know, I have to give some mouse, some mice to this uh, snake to oh, survive. I, I think it's there the problem to make it like a, it's a very symbolic example. I think it's, it's right there. The well, problem. Wait, wait a minute. You, <laughs> you took on a pet as a snake. It's your responsibility to keep that snake going. So, and I don't know yeah. that you can go buy snake food at the pet store. So what else are you going to do? And I, again, I don't, I won't get into, I wouldn't do that. Not because it's wrong, but because I just don't have an interest in it, but I certainly wouldn't judge someone else. <clears throat> who decides to keep a pet snake and feed it mice. I just, it's not something that I, I need to understand, but I can understand the suffering of the mice because I understand suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. But that's, to me, that's just as natural as, it, as the snake catching a mice, as, as someone who keeps a, keeps a snake and give it mice. I feed my, again, I mentioned, I feed my dog dog food, just like I feed myself and I eat meat occasionally. Things have to die to keep me and my puppy going. That, to me, that's just the world. But I should say I don't, I don't waste food on myself or him. You know, as a, just, just, like you, just like somebody who feeds their snake mice probably wouldn't waste the mice. They'd make good use of it. And they, the mice might even have a better life up until that point. <laughs> do, you, the, do you see, Mateo? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I, the, again, the, the idea, thank you for bringing up what you're, what you're allowing me to expand on is the utter practicality of the Dhamma. It fits everything. Even snakes eating mice is a Dhamma application for that. Thank you, Mateo. Hello, Lauren. Hello, good morning. Um, I really enjoyed this data and everyone's comments, but I'm going to take noble silence today. Thank you for joining thank you. me. Hello, Sangamon. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. Nice being here. And I'm going to take notes silence. Yeah, I, I always love it, it when I leave people speechless. I enjoyed the, this suda a lot. Thank you, Ben. Hello, Adam. Good morning, everybody. Is the angle right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, this is another one that's a, a really good, um, really useful for modern living yeah. and modern problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was thinking about the nature of stress, how it occurs both in the mind and, and the body. You know, the mind is the fear and anxiety. In the body, it's knots in your stomach, your okay. blood pressure going up, you're grinding your teeth and that kind of thing. But the, uh, the fifth one, I think that was um, um, the drawbacks, I understand the drawbacks and the drawbacks of the body um, and things that from the outside um, affecting, affecting your body yeah. and um, understanding that that's coming from the outside and not to personalize it, not to, not to draw it into you. I think it's a really good prescription for managing stress, which is very, very useful for me right now. Oh, yeah. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for, for saying that. And, it, and that the, probably the most hurtful stress is the 
ordinary mundane stress. It's it's mm-hmm. often the Buddha references when he's talking about dukkha. He gives a different list, and he often will reference the weather or the environment, such as bugs and stuff that we have to deal with. So again, it, it he the Buddha was a human being, and he was bothered by this stuff. But he he found a way to reclaim his mind, even from a bunch of insects biting him. He understood it. It wasn't. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. But he didn't get angry about it. He didn't lose his mind over it, just like we don't. Maybe. Thank you, Adam. Hello, Laura. Yes, thank you, John, everyone. uh, Adam, very helpful, what you just said. um, Because sometimes I feel like, you know, we were talking about this the other day, John, like when you have a feeling of fear or just, you know, disturbing thoughts or, you know, stress from external factors going on in the world. Um you know, it can overwhelm you, but like you said, there's a distinction between sometimes the temptation is to just abandon the mind and um, rather than do that, you're really developing the right focus and right concentration and refined mindfulness to um, like protect the mind and the mind is still in your body, but that forms like a shelter almost yeah. Um, not a bubble from the stress, like you're still experiencing it and trying to understand it, but I'm realizing more and more, oh, I don't have to just abandon completely my mind when, you know, I'm having these, you know, overwhelming experiences or whatever, but um, yeah. You can just, release your mind in that I moment. I can release, yeah. just release the mind yeah. and it's still, you know, it becomes even more a part of your body. You yeah. Know? And it's that protection um, that we were talking about on that Thursday, kind of tying into this. Yeah. yeah and it really is, you're releasing your mind in that moment. Whatever that disturbance is, it doesn't matter. And you knew you did it. Yeah. And you know you do it. That's Dharma practice. That's why it's restraint. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it is just that direct, too. Yeah. There's, a, there's a, a, uh, a subtle and gentle power in that, isn't there? Yeah. 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 Subtle and yeah, and powerful. Yeah, it is. Changes everything. Thank you for sharing that. Dhamma teacher Ron. Hi, John. Thank you for that. Great sutta. Um, Yeah, it. uh, The whole thing of the of the sutta starts in this first uh, sentence. Yeah. Germanander was sick and distressed. Yep. And. took it to Ananda, Ananda took it to the Buddha, and the Buddha says, well, this is how you get out of your distress, you know, can't do anything about your sickness, but this is how you deal with your distress, yeah. and, you know, understand these things, and number 10 is, this is how you refine this understanding, you yeah, know, that's you're right. what you're reading. Yeah, and notice that the, uh, Uncle Sid didn't just say, oh, just tell him to go meditate a little more. Because the Buddha understood it's not just meditation. He referenced it in almost every paragraph and every one of the understandings. Or everyone. Not just Uncle so. Sid. Uncle Sid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but just to the, you establish your mind. And, and, uh, and something Laura said that about we, we develop safety or a refuge. And it's just that way. And within that refuge, yeah. we practice the Dhamma. Yeah. Dhamma teacher Jen. Hi, John. Um, I think I'm going to take noble silence today. Thank you for joining us. Dhamma teacher David. Thank you. And I like how the Buddha didn't let Ananda off easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
a lot of sympathies, a visit from the Buddha would be enough that he ended up teaching Ananda. Yeah, that's a good point. And he learned, and therefore he brought it back to this person in distress. And oftentimes this format's used. The Buddha doesn't just say, uh, uh, yeah, let's go pay a sick friend a visit, and that, that's enough. So, again, that teaching moment for all of us. So, thank you. Yeah. Yes, thank it, you, David. It also teaches that it's not about the Buddha, but about the Dharma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's about yeah. the teaching and understanding, not the not Such a good person. point. Yeah. yeah. And the Buddha was always, always taught that way in a very self-effacing way. You know, and again, he could have even said to another, well, tell him to come here and I'll set him straight. No, like David said, he used it as a, a teaching opportunity for everyone, including Ananda. You know, it, it, yeah. uh, and all of us here today, I mean, again, this is something that, this, that Uncle Sid taught 2,600 years ago. And it's still relevant. It still works today, doesn't it? And again, I, I, I say that often, but that's, it's just remarkable to me that, that Uncle Sid figured it out. <laughs> Any uh, any other what's that? Cousin Sid. Cousin Sid. Uncle Sid. You know what the uh, the uh, my home Wi-Fi network is named? (laughs) What are you gonna do? You know, it's either gonna be Bodie or Uncle Sid. So Bodie's got other things. It's Uncle Sid. Uh, We'll finish as we usually do. But I want to this Sunday. I'm going to be sending out uh, two emails. One is a general email about the retreat to the entire newsletter and then specifically to those that, that have uh, uh, reserved a spot for the retreat. Uh, and it's just a link to the uh, the retreat book and uh, there'll be an explanation, but there's a, a website version and four other versions that can be downloaded and added to your device or read directly that way. So, ah. Wait, wait, wait. Something from Mateo. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that up there before. Oh, I, I think it's the, the snake in the nose. Uh, I look at this later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's up about the snake? You can look later. <laughs> Thank you, Mateo. Okay, we'll finish with meta as we always do. Uh, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, excuse me, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, 
spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime delighting. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. See you all. Bye. 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 See you, Mateo. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.